Take a seat. Let me ask you, what is it that moves you in your earthly existence? So often the question that is asked from pulpits, but I really want you to consider this. What is it that moves you in your earthly existence? What is it that is the most important element of your life, of your brief and uncertain life? Is it your own comfort and security? Or is it more than that? Is it something that is transcendent of this earthly existence? Is it the expansion of God's kingdom? The promotion of God's glory in this world? Our passage today serves to encourage us to put our priorities in order. To focus our lives in those things that really matter to order our priorities wisely to make the right decisions and to persevere steadfastly in them with the grace of the Lord of course it reminds us that holiness is the convergence of our will to the will of God let me say that again holiness is the conversion of our will to the will of God. But let me just give you a little bit of context uh, so that we know where we are. We've been going through the book of Acts for about three years now, two years, going on three years. We've been going through this book. We've arrived at chapter 21. And as we arrive here, uh, we're fast approaching the end of the book. We're, I'm hoping to be done by its summer. But... We've been recently considering the, three, uh, the third, the last of the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul goes on three missionary journeys after his conversion. And we've finished chapter 20 with the end of the third missionary journey. Or in a sense, this is still that missionary journey finishing the third one. Because he's still making his way in his, to Jerusalem. But... The, the missionary part, let's call it, that has finished. And let me just briefly give you a, a, a brief overview of those three missionary journeys. It's breathtaking to consider where the Apostle Paul has been. He, he goes in his first missionary journey from Antioch, sent by the church in Antioch. He goes to Cyprus. He's, he's accompanied then by, you remember, Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement and for a brief period in that first missionary journey by John Mark as well. In that first uh, journey, he visits cities like Salamine, Paphos, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Perga. And then he comes back, and he goes back into the mission field. The second missionary journey, now he goes with Silas. He, went, he goes through Syria and Cilicia. That's the, the, what today is Lebanon and, and uh, Turkey. Uh, and he visits churches that he has established, planted in the first missionary journey. He strengthens them. He encourages them. Along the way in the second missionary journey, he meets a, meets a young man named Timothy. He enlists him and he, he brings him along. As he's trying to get into Ephesus, 
You remember this? He is providentially hindered from going both to Ephesus and both to the north. He eventually finds himself in the poor city of Troas. In Troas, he has a vision from God calling him to cross the Aegean Sea and to go into Achaia and Macedonia. And for the first time in the history of the New Testament church, the gospel gets to Europe. And there he visits city, cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. And he returns. And as he's returning, he passes through Ephesus. He cannot stay because he wants, to, be, uh, he wants to, to go to Jerusalem as fast as possible. But he says, if the Lord wills, I will return. And he leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla there. And indeed the Lord willed. He goes to Jerusalem and as he's making his way back, he goes back to Ephesus. And there he spent the better part of three years ministering. And uh, before he went uh, back, or before we find ourselves in the passage where we are, where Paul is going back to Jerusalem, he goes on a, a tour through Macedonia and Achaia where he strengthens the churches there. Again, this is a normal pattern of his ministry, where he seeks to strengthen the churches that he has planted in the second missionary journey. He also collects an offering to bring from those churches in, in those areas to bring to Jerusalem. And then he returns to Troas. He then sails from Troas. He goes on this uh, multiple stop a course through several islands in the Aegean Sea, that is uh, on the southwest uh, coast of Turkey. We saw a couple of weeks ago he at Miletus, he meets with the, the elders from the church in Ephesus, and from and, and they have this heart wrenching, moving uh, uh, the farewell. And, and now we've arrived at chapter 21. This is basically, uh, I don't know how many chapters, but a good number of chapters summarized. And we, got, we get here, and Paul is still making his way to Jerusalem. From now to the end of the book, the final stint of Paul's earthly ministry, he is going to Jerusalem, he's going to be in prison, he will provide ample testimony both to those in power and to those he comes across as he's bound up in chains on his way to Rome where Luke will finish, spoiler alert, the, the account of the book of Acts with Paul house arrested in Rome. So today we're just looking at these 16 verses. We're looking particularly at this uh, encouraging uh, dilemma I say encouraging, this, this dilemma of finding God's will for your life in the, in the life of Paul. He's, he knows what the Lord has called him to do, and yet there, there's these loving brethren that seem to be advising me otherwise. I think there is plenty of pastoral um, application here for us to learn. But firstly, let's just walk through the passage as, it, as is our custom and we read firstly that in verses 1 and 2 that when it came to pass, they, when they departed and set sail, they came straight course, uh, course we came to Koz, and the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. 
So we, we see that Paul and his companions, after they embarked from Miletus, and again, if you want to look at the maps in the back of your Bibles, that's why they are there for. They, they, as they're going their way to Jerusalem, they stayed overnight in Kos. Kos is a, uh, a city that is known for uh, a school of medicine that was there. Uh, the old, um, perhaps the, the greatest uh, ancient Greek influence in, in the field of medicine, Hippocrates, from where we have the oath, of, the Hippocratic Oath, he lived there, the, his school of medicine was there. From there they go to Rhodes, the capital island of the island, the capital of the island with the same name. You might know Rhodes when you, whenever you see those, those lists of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There's one that's called the Coloss Colossus of Rhodes. It's depicted in various forms, but this, it's this tall statue that's uh, loomed over the, the port or the harbor of, of Rhodes. Um, you might be asking, was it there in Paul's day? No, it had been destroyed about three years uh, earlier uh, in an earthquake. Uh, significantly, Rhodes have a, had a large Jewish population, and from there they go to Patra. Patra was a former capital of the kingdom of Lydia, of Lycia, apologies, and it was now the seat of the governor of, of the province of Rome, so it was an influential city. But Paul is just uh, jumping these places. But again, it proves to us the, the, the veracity of these claims. It's, these places are basically one day sail apart. So he, he, goes, from call, he goes to cause. Uh, in one day they would be able to get to Rhodes. That's basically uh, the, the distance. And then from Rhodes one day they would be able to get to, to Patera. From there they took what probably was a, a larger ship that was going directly to Phoenicia. And if you, if you would look at the map now, they go from the southwest of Turkey and they sail directly, not going by the coast, but they sail directly to Judea, to Phoenicia, to the, where uh, Israel and Palestine or whatever your politics are on the matter, it's, it's uncalled for now. But to that region that is today Israel, uh, Syria, in that region over there. And that's, they, took, they take this perhaps larger ship and they sail to Tyre in Judea, about 650 kilometers. Don't ask me how many miles these are. Tyre was an ancient port city, was the principal city of the Phoenician region. Because of its proximity to, to Judea, the city must have received the gospel very early. And that's what we hear when, when they get there they find disciples. They, they, they landed there, probably to unload. They were hoping to get further south, closer to Jerusalem by sea, but they found disciples. The word for finding disciples here is quite interesting. It is a word that, that refers not so much to, you know, they stumbled upon disciples, or they, they just happened by happenstance to... Uh, to come across disciples, it, it denotes an active searching. It's, it's as if they, they, they got there, they realized they needed a few days, uh, they needed to spend some time there, so they actively sought out uh, to find disciples. It is possible that Paul knew some of the disciples here as well. 
If you remember, in the first missionary journey, uh, upon the controversy that happened, as Paul and Barnabas were traveling back to Jerusalem to, to, to meet with the Jerusalem council, Paul actually went through Tyre, telling them of what the Lord had done in the, in the, in the mission field. So probably Paul, although it's 20-odd years later, Paul still knew some of the believers that lived in that city if they were still there. They stayed there for a week. It is possible that they stayed there for a week because uh, the, the ship was loading or, or reloading uh, what they what had or after he had unloaded the cargo. And they continued uh, in that same ship. Or it might have been that they took some time to to get another small, smaller vessel to do the voyage through the coast of Caesarea. That's going south to Caesarea. And although Luke does not mention it, it is presumed that Paul used his, this, his stay in this city to do exactly the same thing that he had done all along, to strengthen, to encourage, to, to build up, uh, to report uh, the churches and to report of what the Lord had been doing. Uh, that's what Paul did. Everywhere he went, he, brought strength, uh, he strengthened the churches, he brought encouragement to the believers, as he gave them the reports of what the Lord had been doing in the mission field. Two events are recorded for us in the entire. It's a recommendation and it's a dismissal. As for the recommendation, we read there in verse 4 that after they found the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. In light of what we read later, we find that this recommendation uh, was probably coming from, from the Spirit in the sense that the Spirit was telling them that Paul would be imprisoned, that Paul would, would, would suffer persecution. Not so much the, the counsel itself of not going, that's probably driven by the fear of the thing that uh, that the disciples learned, but more the, the, the situation that, yes, Paul would face imprisonment in Jerusalem. But Paul continued firm. He knew that he had to come, that he had to go to Jerusalem. He persisted. It's interesting, and we'll, we'll, we'll speak a little bit in a moment about this, but it's interesting that the Spirit told him what was going to happen, and he persists in going there. Let me just offer you the comment of John Calvin on this passage, which I think is in, important to, to understand, is that when the, the disciples here are warning them, or warning Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, it's not so much that the Spirit is saying, Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. And Paul, who is ever known by refusing what the Spirit says, uh, this, or is ever known by doing what the Spirit says, uh, now for the first time in his life, he, he, he chooses to do the contrary. For the first time in his Christian life, that is. No, it, the Spirit informed the disciples of what was going to happen. They prophesied about it. And yet they allowed uh, their, 
lack of knowledge of this situation to inform their advice. John Calvin says this, The Lord showed these brethren, of whom Luke makes mention, what should come to pass, yet nevertheless they know not what is expedient and what Paul's calling does require, because they, the measure of their gift does not reach so far. They know what will come to pass, but they do not know what is expedient. The same thing will be, be relevant in the next uh, section. They knew it, what was going to happen, but they did not know how to handle it. As for the farewell, we read that uh, the women uh, and the, the children, they came to the beach and they're again praying for one another. Nothing is said about what the prayer was, but we can imagine and we can assume that Paul prayed for their spiritual uh, well-being, for their safety and the safety of their churches, and, for that, the, and that the ma members of the church prayed for Paul, the, for safety, for traveling mercies, as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem. We don't have details, but certainly it seems like it was a warm and emotional farewell. Just like the farewell that happened a few days before at Miletus. And there, from there, from, uh, from uh, Tyre, they make a brief st stopover in Ptolemy, the, a port in Phoenicia, about 40 kilometers south. Again, one day travel. Uh, Ptolemy, if you know the, the, the geography nowadays or the, the, the region, is the, now called the city of Acre. Uh, and from there, they again go, they descend down. Oh, in spite of the short time there as well, we, Paul makes a point of meeting with the members of the local church there. Verse 7, uh, we read that they greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Nothing much is said, but again, we can assume what Paul did. Give them encouragement, give them a report of what the Lord had been doing. And from there they come to Caesarea. And let me just quickly uh, give you a reminder of, where, of what Caesarea, where Caesarea is and where, why is it so, such an important city. The city of Caesarea is already known to us. It's not the first time. After the death of Stephen, all the way, all those years before, the church of Jerusalem was scattered and they came to Caesarea. They settled in the city. Acts 8.40 speaks of that. When, when Paul uh, was converted, he came to Jerusalem. He was brought before the, the apostles and he was received by the apostles. But then a plot on his life was made. People, the Jews wanted to kill Paul because he became a Christian. And what did the, the brethren then do? They brought him to Caesarea, where the port city was, so that he could catch a ship and go to Tarsus. In Caesarea was the house of Cornelius, the centurion. When Peter came to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile con convert, he was in this city. In this city that, that the Spirit descended on those hearing Peter's preaching. This is an, a significant city. It was also in Caesarea that Paul landed after uh, the second missionary journey 
from uh, coming from Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. We do not know how many days exactly Paul spent here, but Luke uh, reports that it was it was only a few days. It, it, it was uh, we stayed there with him just a few days. And it says to us that they stayed in the house of Philip. Philip the evangelist. We know him, no, don't we? Philip the evangelist was that uh, Christian that was used by God to, to evangelize that region. It's, he's called the evangelist here probably to distinguish him from the apostle. And because he was the one that evangelized the region of Caesarea. I wonder if... Let me just say this before we, we, we press on. The office of an evangelist. We read in Ephesians 4 that God gave some to be evangelists. And we spoke about this before. What is an evangelist? Is it, is it something uh, that is... Uh, for today, God gave some for apostles, evangelists, for pastors and teachers. Is an evangelist an office of the church today? I believe not. I believe that in the New Testament, an evangelist seems to designate a temporary ministry, just like that of an apostle. Not restricted to a particular local church, but someone who was restricted to uh, do outreach outside of the realm of the, of the local authority of the church uh, in a particular region. And just like the apostolic and the prophetic offices of the, of the New Testament early church have ceased, so has the office of an evangelist. Again, I, 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 I tend to quote from, from authors when I want to prove that this is not something that I uh, conjured up out, out, out of my mind. This is not new teaching. Calvin says this, Evangelists, in my judgment, stood, before, uh, stood between apostles and teachers, for it was a similar function to that of the apostles, to preach the gospel everywhere, instead of fixing themselves in one place only. It, it, what I'm saying is, there is no such thing as an office of an evangelist. Now you might be asking, I know such and such a church, they have someone in the payroll who is an evangelist. Are they wrong in doing so? I would say no. They're not wrong in having someone uh, set apart and supplied by the church to do the work of an evangelist. But there is a distinction between the office of an evangelist and someone who does the work of an evangelist. Someone who, who is, in a sense, we all should be doing the work of an evangelist. We all should be reaching out with the gospel. But there is no such thing as a, an office. There are only two offices in Scripture for the New Testament Church of Christ, that is, elders and deacons. So what does Luke tell us about Philip here? It tells us that he was an evangelist. He had seven daughters. Uh, he was one of the seven. He had four virgin daughters who prophesied. 
Again, this is fulfillment of Scripture. The, the, the prophet Joel had said that, that in, when the fullness of time came, that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, that your sons and daughters would, uh, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But strangely enough, in this situation, although Philip's four daughters are prophetesses, the prophecy comes from Agabus. And again, we remember Agabus. Agabus already showed up in the, in the book of Acts. Already ha- is, is someone who is well known. It was Agabus that gave the prophecy that there was a famine coming upon uh, uh, the region during the, the reign of, of Claudius. And now Agabus comes again down from Judea to Caesarea to tell Paul, you're going to be imprisoned. He takes... Paul's belt. Paul's belt would have been a, 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 a piece of leather or a piece of, of cloth that he would use to tie his tunic. He takes his belt in a very Old Testament symbolic way. And he, he says, so shall the Jews. And he ties, uh, and he says, so shall the Jews do to the owner of this belt and deliver it into the hands of the Gentiles. Which begs the question, which begs the question, did this happen? Did this happen? So some, some look at this passage and they, they find it to be a, a, a justification for the, the prophetic ministry in the New Testament. And charismatic churches will say that, See, this is proof that there is a, a, a prophetic ministry still ongoing. Because the greatest problem in churches that believe in the gift of prophecy still existing is that many a times, and I come from those circles, many a times those prophecies are wrong. You'll have someone being inspired by the Spirit standing up uh, and saying something that never really happens. seem to recall just a few years ago, not to get into politics again, but I seem to recall just a few years ago, when, by occasion of the, the, the election results in America in 2020, that quite, not a few of these so-called uh, Christian prophets were saying that, no, Trump is going to win the election, and, and this and that is going to happen. And after they lost the election, they, they came and said, there's, there's going to be an overthrowing and, and all of that. Not, don't take my mentioning these things as uh, uh, me siding with any side here. But they were wrong. Now, we know what we did with prophets that were wrong in the Old Testament. It's... It's not like with baseball where you get three strikes and then you're out. It's like you get one strike and you're out. But Agabus, to come back to Agabus, now the question is, is he right? Is the prophecy right? Because you, as you will see when we continue reading through, this, through the book, it wasn't exactly the Jews that delivered, uh, that imprisoned... Um, Paul in Jerusalem, was it? It was the Romans that seized him. Which begs the question, was Agabus wrong? And to go back to what some charismatics say today, particularly, I'll, I'll name him because uh, 
at times it's good for us to know the people who defend these things, namely this systematic theologian uh, named Wayne Grudem, he says, well, there is a two-tiered prophecy in the New Testament. Uh, there is the prophecy that is uh, divinely inspired and inerrant, uh, which we have in Scripture, but then there is a, a lesser uh, prophecy that is uh, in some way fallible. That is a prophecy that, that can be mistaken. It's still a gift of prophecy. It's still given by the Holy Spirit, but you can be wrong. That's what many charismatics say today. That the gift uh, in our day, Agabus prophecy and other prophecies in the no New Testament, because they allegedly contain deceptions, are considered by, uh, to be a, a particular class of prophetic statements. They are distinct uh, distinct from the infallible apostolic prophecies. They're second class. They're not equal with scripture in authority, but yet they are spiritual. The difficulty with this, I hope you realize, is that for Agabus, he wasn't saying, oh, I think I might know something here. Agabus was speaking with full authority the, uh, Luke, who heard this prophecy, reports it as uh, Agabus speaking with, with full authority and with infallibility of the Spirit. Paul himself does not deny that he's right. He's, Agabus is not saying, oh, I advise the person who owns this belt not to go to Jerusalem for this or that may happen, as I have understood from what I think is a spiritual revelation. No! Agabus stands and he says, this is going to happen. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. But he wasn't the Jews. How was it? Interestingly, we're, we're going to come there at some point. Uh, but let's just turn there because it's the last chapter of Acts. Acts 28. And if you keep a finger there, it's, it's an interesting um, parallel here. In Acts 28, verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together... Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people, our customers, of, or the customers are, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. You can see the parallels here, even in the English version, but you'll have to trust me on this. In the Greek, the way that Paul frames uh, the, end of, the end there, that I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. In the Greek, all those same parallels are being uh, emphasized. It's the same words. It's uh, being bound, being uh, delivered. It's the same word, being handed over to the Gentiles or to the Romans. So for Paul, this prophecy was fulfilled. For Paul, this prophecy was indeed fulfilled perfectly. He wasn't denying that the Spirit had said that he was going to be bound up. He knew this. But why, why were they so insistent? 
Why were they so insistent with Paul not to do, go forward with it? Again, I, I, I go back to, to the former one, to the one that happened in, in, uh, at the beginning of our text today, in, in that they were asking him not to go. They were being insistent. They were pleading with him because they knew what was going to happen, but they had no uh, revelation of what the will of the Spirit actually was. For all they know, the Spirit was revealing that just so that uh, the, the resilience and, the, and the, the, the strength of Paul was confirmed. In the, the grace of Paul, uh, God in Paul's life was confirmed. Good men, good men like Agabus, like Luke and the other disciples sometimes can make uh, very wrong decisions and they need to be dissuaded from holding so strongly to these things. It was fear that actually was troubling them. It wasn't the prophecy. The prophecy was, was going to pan out. It was the fear of, what, of living, of being a, a Christian and, and, no longer, and, and no longer having this great man that the Apostle Paul was. But the Apostle Paul knew better. He knew that God had called him for this purpose. Even though he was so strongly persuade, uh, advised against, he was not persuaded. He told them, Stop. He's not only ready to, to be arrested, but he's even ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Although they, are, they were well-intentioned advices, Paul sees it more as an obstacle. Notice that the Apostle Paul does not question Agabus' prophecy about what would happen to him. He knew that by going to Jerusalem, in spite of the insistence of, insistence of his brethren and companions, he knew what would happen to him, and he wanted to bring that offering to them in Jerusalem. And then in the last two verses we are considering, there's some more preparations. Now the, the sea voyage finishes, and uh, they make some preparations uh, after those days, we packed. The word there for packed seems to denote that they, they, they hired some horses and, and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain man named Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Again, they are going to Jerusalem in the Feast of Pentecost, uh, Accommodation there will, will be uh, at a premium if, if there is any available. But they found this Christian man, uh, an early disciple, an older uh, believer, uh, Manasseh of Cyprus, and they were to stay with him. He probably lived uh, in Jerusalem or in one of those towns and villages around Jerusalem, and they were to stay with him there. So, and that closes off the, the, the exposition, in a sense, of the, of the passage here. 
But on the basis of this passage, there are, as I said, many interesting and many relevant pastoral applications for us. The first of all, uh, the first of which uh, I've already emphasized before, but again, we need to mark it. We need to remind ourselves of this, the love that Paul has for the church, the, Paul, the, 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 the one calling in his life that is to be uh, an instrument of blessing in God's hand to bless his people in the church. Again, Paul never misses an opportunity, does he? He comes to these cities, and even when he's just one, one single day in Ptolemy, it's like he, he could have well stayed in the ship. But he, he actively goes out and he seeks to find the Christians there. He wants to, to encourage them. And it should encourage us, all of us, to love, care, uh, and to... And to be zealous for the, for the church of Christ. It should encourage us. I love to go out, uh, out on, uh, on a trip somewhere. It doesn't happen much. But it's like, I love to go to a church. I love to get to go meet uh, new Christian uh, brethren. You have, we, we have that blessing that wherever we go in this world, we have friends and family. In every single corner of this world, there is a Christian church. And they are our friends. They are our family. And that's, that leads to the second lesson. The fellowship that should exist between Christian believers. In this case, hospitality. I know that we've been uh, through quite a lot recently with, with COVID and, and uh, lockdowns, but hospitality is a distinctly Christian uh, attitude. And we see that through in the pages of Scripture. We see that in, in, the, in the records of church history. Hospitality is at the center of the Christian life and how we should act uh, as Christians Look at how many doors were open. It's like Paul didn't have to spend money lodging in the hotels. Why? Because whenever he went, people were just happy to receive him. Why? Because, okay, he was an apostle. Perhaps uh, there, there's an element of that. But because they were, he was a Christian. Wherever he went, people just wanted to receive him. The man who is a part of a church family has friends all over the world. Someone, I actually don't know who said it because where I found it, it said it was anonymous and perhaps better so anonymous. Someone said this, who, the, the one who practices hospitality entertains God himself. And I think there is a sense where this is so right and so biblical. As we receive other Christians, we are receiving the body of Christ. We are in, entertaining God himself as we entertain Christians in our home. And hospitality is, is a form of worship. But the third, let me just encourage you before we get to the third one. Be active in pursuing places where you can serve God 
in your own sphere. I know it can be troubling. I know it can be hard sometimes, just putting a, a, a spread on the table and, and receiving people, but that's where relationships are built. Not just visitors, not just the one, Christians that come from other, city, uh, from other places and visit us for a day, but one another. All those one anotherings in Scripture don't happen inside of these walls, do they? All those bearing with one another's. All those loving one another, they cannot happen in many senses inside of these four walls. They need to happen outside of these four walls throughout the week. And thirdly and lastly, the main lesson I think for us has to do with the determination that the Apostle Paul had. Just as Jesus persevered on his way to Jerusalem, he had the cross before his eyes. He, he set his eyes on Jerusalem, the evangelist says. So Paul set his eyes on Jerusalem, better yet on Rome, and he would not be deterred. He knew that he was called to fulfill this pro, pro, this, this, to fulfill this, this role and no matter how many people, both to our Lord Jesus and to the Apostle Paul, uh, no matter how many of his disciples, how many of his friends try to dissuade them and say, don't, don't go down that road. Though so many try to persuade and dissuade uh, Jesus and Paul, they knew that suffering was the way to glory. Paul knew that suffering in his own life was the will of God. Let that sink in. That God willed that his life would be, or his ministry, or at least a great, a, a great part of his ministry would be one of suffering. And God told him that right at the start. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul for, knew this. Just like Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And Paul knew this. That is why Paul is able to say to the, to, the, to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, the suffering servant to die is gain. What really mattered to him was not seeking comfort, security, peace, and, 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 and good things in life. What really mattered to him was to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. As he said to the elders in, in, in Ephesus, He's ready to be arrested. Verse 13 of our text today. He's ready to be arrested, to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem if necessary for the name of the Lord Jesus. Had he not done so, he wouldn't have the opportunity to speak before the, the Sanhedrin that, that, he, uh, that we read in the following chapters. To speak to two Roman governors, to King Agrippa in, the, in on Caesar's own court. 
So my question to you is, what moves you? The same question from the start. What propels you? What is your purpose in life? What is it that you're looking for? Is it just your own self-comfort? You're gonna, or, or are you propelled by something else? Is it your self-care? We live in a very therapeutic society, don't we? Our culture has become uh, uh, enamored with self. It's the therapeutic self. I need to feel good about this. You wonder why many churches are empty nowadays? Because the message doesn't really make you feel good, does it? What is it that moves you? Is it personal comfort or security or is it what moved Paul? What motivated Paul? To consummate your own ministry. To fulfill your own ministry. To witness of the gospel of God's grace. Even if that means suffering. This is the important lesson that we need to learn. Again, holiness consists in the agreement between the will of the, the creature and the will of the creator. That is, in a nutshell, what holiness is. is being set apart for God. What is it that moves you? Is it to be holy? Because when you suffer, if you don't understand the will of God... When you suffer, even the smallest of sufferings will cause you to despair. Even the smallest of things will cause you to lose hope, to be terrified, to be bitter about it. But when you understand the will of God, in the, even in the midst of sufferings, you can say like the Job, when he got his family and his, uh, and his uh, treasures all taken away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he understood this suffering is a part of the will of God. If you understand the will of God, even the most strong of sufferings will not move you. But if you don't see the will of God, you will find only aggravation and distress. You will find only painful anxiety in everything. So the question in light of, of suffering, that's maybe a, third, a fourth lesson. Let me just go there for a moment. The question in light of suffering is not uh, to dwell upon why is it that I've arrived here. Who is it that's done me wrong in this situation? Who is it that, that's failed me? Who is it that has uh, uh, sinned against me? What is it that I've done that made me do? Uh, that causes you to despair. Not only at that moment, but it will cause you to despair for the rest of your life. And I'm not saying that people don't defraud us. And I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes that we have to pay for months and years and perhaps the rest of our lives. But to see everything through the lenses of self will cause us to despair. But if you then do the, the, the contrary and you go, okay, I know the human element of this. What is it, the will? How can I see the, 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 
the hand of God in the midst of this? How can I see that God was actually intending all things, working together for good of those who love him, of those who are called according to his purpose? That will cause you, even this, the, the most horrible of, of providences, the death of loved ones, the, 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 the cancer diagnosis, the, 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 the losing of all your earthly possessions, the, the greatest of all tragedies, to be just a mild inconvenience and a, and a light and momentary affliction that is going to pass away in light of the glory to come. If we vex ourselves, dwelling in our thoughts, on our own selves, uh, because of this, because of that, it's me, it's that, we're going to lose heart. But to come back to the to, to choices and choosing our paths and what motivates us, we're not called, are we? To take the path of least attrition. No. To take the path of least attrition. We're not called to avoid the path simply because it is a difficult one. In fact, most often, the difficult path is the path that we should be taking. I wouldn't make that a rule to discern the Lord's will, but, but it is often the case. We must weigh them. We must hear what our brethren say. But sometimes they will say things that, are, that we know are wrong. Are we prepared to take such a path as Paul took? To, to take such steps as God calls us upon to take? Is your love for Christ as strong as the Apostle Paul's love for Christ was that he would take you or propel you even to risk your life? Because if you're not willing to lose his, your life for Christ's sake, you're not worthy of being called his disciple. And that's not my words, are they? For the Apostle Paul, he, want, he knew what the Lord was calling him. To do, to suffer in the same way or in a very similar way to the way that Jesus suffered. It is not something that most of us will be called to do. But we need to embrace the will of God. Again, the will, the holiness which is what we are called to, is the convergence of our will to the will of the